Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings. We are where we are reading Marguerite Young, Inviting the Muses. I know I had to stop. Um, we were we will continue an afternoon with Marianne Moore. I had to stop after just a couple of pages, but I will finish that up today. However, I'm going to make a little side note here. So just to catch you up, I'm assuming this is Brigham Barnes. He contacted me on Twitter after an interview that uh, I had talked about, I think, um, and, and, or that he had read about um, Marguerite Young's connection to the Mormons and how that, if that was in Miss um, McIntosh, My Darling, or her work, did I know anything about it? And I did not. I don't know enough about the Mormons to comment on it anyways. So, lo and behold, February 28th, if you can, go to the Center for Latter-day Saint Arts, and the article is called Sister Marguerite, Our Darling, published on February 28th, 2023. It has a nice uh, artwork thing there. Twitter's broken. I can't get it on Twitter, so sorry about that. I was able to send him a message about it. It's fascinating. So, apparently, he's knows a lot more about Mormons than I do, and I think he's associated with them. Maybe Mormon himself. I'm sorry if I missed this in reading, in reading the article. I was just going through it really quick. Um, but uh, just great article on a possible connection between Marguerite Young, uh, either as commenting like her, she was commenting she was a descendant of Margaret, uh, Brigham Young, but he even looked into that, which kudos to him. I had not even thought of that. So he looked up some of her background that way, um, and also references uh, that could be made, hello you piggy, um, that could be made between Marguerite, the Mormons, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, uh, some of their beliefs, uh, and their relationship to things that were said in this, no, no, don't want them to do, oh my gosh, you are a menace. Nothing is safe in this house. No. No. He's looking like he's been. <laughs> oh my gosh. Do not mark that. Get him if he tries to do anything. Oh. I swear, nothing is safe in this house. <sighs> Sorry, my cat was trying to scratch up a picture. Uh, um artwork not just like any picture like an artwork so um and he's already been a mess today um anyways so um uh so barnes was uh making a connection possible connections between church of latter-day saints some of their um what does he call them some of their um Oh, sorry, I lost it. Uh, their sayings or their uh, narratives, um, uh, things made by uh, Miss uh, Macintosh, and also very young. And so he's uh, pointing to some similarities between them um, uh, that were very interesting and uh, completely uh, doable. I mean, there's nothing like out of the... Is he really... I'm going to take him with me. Okay, so my cat is just being a total pain in the butt. Anyways, please check out that uh, article by um, Brigham Barnes. Uh, it's totally, a very well-written article. Um, Sister Marguerite, Our Darling, 
uh, February, February 28th, 2023 at the Center for Latter-day Saint Arts. It's on the website. It's the blog, the season blog module. Um, I'm sorry, I couldn't post a link. I posted it on Substack. Could not get through Twitter to share it out there. Sorry about that, but I will try again later. It's broken, obviously. Um, um, but yeah, I um, try and see what... But uh, totally unbelievable, very interesting, and another take on where Marguerite, some of Marguerite's influence would be. You. You. Come here. You're coming with me. Okay, so we... No, 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 no. Why? Why? You are horrible. So, we will continue the essay. Up the stairs. And bring my menace with me. You. He broke into the... He sleeps in the basement. We have two other matronly cats... That he torments. But they have their own, they have a big cage that they stay in at night. And we put him so we can get a good night's sleep. We put him in the basement. He's in the rest of the basement. They each have their own separate, they're separated from each other and they each have their own section. But there is a communal area. And my kid had bought treats for uh, her cats, he does not need any treats because he eats chicken that I cook for him. And so you'd, you'd think things are sealed. So we thought this uh, treat box was sealed, opened it, gave the, gave her cats treats, sealed it back up. He found it and we had put it up high. He found it, got up there, knocked it to the ground and so I couldn't figure out why this morning he didn't want to come eat his chicken. He didn't, he wanted to go right back into the basement. Didn't want to play with his Q-tip. Q-tip, Q-tips are his favorite toy. And I was wondering, what in the world is going on? And uh, sure enough, he knocked down the treat bowl. I'm pretty sure he ate half of it himself. And so that's why your belly is full and he didn't want his breakfast. So I have, we have company. I don't know for how long through the next couple of months. So it's, I'm having to find a new place to do the podcast. That's why I got interrupted um, so quickly. Last time I apologized for that. And um, uh, so I have to kind of work around where I'm going to, to be. We think the company is temporary, but I don't know. <laughs> so, know how that works. So, okay, now I've brought you up to speed on everything that's been happening. Oh, so, the company has, has artwork, and they brought the artwork in, and you know, to keep it in the house and keep it safe. So, what does the menace do? The menace walks up to it and proceeds to try and claw the frame, the wooden frame and mat on the artwork that is very, very um, important to the house guest. So, I had to bring him upstairs with me. And the house guest is allergic to cats. So, it's been very interesting. Okay, so I apologize for all of that. That's just a really quick uh, 
introduction to the essay and afternoon with Marianne Moore. I just got the notification from Barnes. Like I said, Twitter's broken. So I just got the notification from Barnes today and I wanted to be sure and share that out. And so let's go ahead and finish this essay. So I remember where I stopped at. I'm going to back up uh, to get to the top of that paragraph. Um, she is one of the poets who have done most to preserve the English language as a way of new, intoxicating speech, but she has asked me not to say that her work is wonderful. Her work, she says, is a congeries of errors, and I remember that. In one of her poems, she speaks of life's faulty excellence, for which reason I will accept her definition of art, of her art. Life, too, I will agree, is a congeries of errors. It's nothing perfect. The great, a great value of her poetry is that it takes us very close to our prime sensational experience, which we are likely to gloss over with generalities. She gets us back to the fluctuation of the particular. Miriam Moore is a woman with a narrow head and pale blue eyes, which seem to gather all the light into them. She is so unfashionable that she seems extremely fashionable. She speaks in quick, enigmatic sentences which strip away the flesh of thought and leave the bones bare and shining, so that suddenly you feel that you are seen into the secret heart of things. You are mistaken, however, for soon you realize a further complexity. There is no secret heart, no simple solution, but another problem, fastidious and strange. This is the atmosphere of her speech as of her poetry, which seems only the organization of her speech, the preservative of many fleeting moments. By people's surroundings, according to one of her poems, you can tell what people are. Her surroundings are what people acquainted with her poetry would expect, a mixture of the old and the new, most interesting mixture, which seems haphazard but is really organized. The apartment, like her poetry, is filled with emblematic animals, each seeming to speak its moral virtue. When you pull the lampshade chain, you discover a beetle-sized baby ebony seahorse in your hand, and then there are those tiny mice of carved ivory no bigger than your fingernails running across the shelf, and there is a picture of a mother kangaroo with three baby kangaroos in her pocket, and there are skeletons of grasshoppers. Nothing is conspicuous. Everything seems somehow to have acquired its proper space and time, though everything is incongruous and an archaic order. Anarchic order. I asked Marianne Moore where the blonde sofa and chair came from, and she told me that they were fruit wood from France, given to her mother by a friend, and that she did not know their worth, but had warned that they should not be tight, lightly tossed about. We mix our furniture systematically because we cannot help it, she said. We, by the way, refers to herself and her mother, whose wit she has described in several poems. Mrs. Moore reads all of Marianne's poems while they are in process of composition, and like her critical daughter, objects to anything which is less than individual or seems to go beyond the boundaries of the most sensational thought. That is, they do not believe in using the large, loose words which mean nothing. The mother once declared that she was tired of the word sincere, but the daughter did not know how she would get along without it and analyzed it into further meanings. Their most common speech in which they transact the business of daily prosaic life is as imaginistic as if it had been plucked from a poem of flight of the imagination. Not long ago they both had colds and were afraid of infecting other people, until Mrs. Moore said, Let us have done with the umbrella of our contagion. Then there was the occasion when Marianne Moore found in a box of strawberries a flat green disc-shaped strawberry with, a seed sick, with its seed sticking out. It was almost all seeds and no strawberry. Here's a strawberry that's had quite a struggle, she said, and wrote one of her, and wrote one of her most beautiful poems with that image in mind. Her poems are rich and autonomous, self-reliant images from the most diverse sources. The kitchen, heraldry, the park, voyages, the grocery store, Egyptology, 
images which had never met in one context before, but now seem as much at home as the mixed furniture in the living room. A list of them is a list of marvels. The east with its snails and its emotional shorthand and jade cockroaches, the reindeer with its candelabrum-headed ornament, Ireland which has survived on every kind of shortage, the stones which grow, the butterfly pawing like a horse, the wrinkled ocean, how describe all these wonderful constellations and diversities of worlds which do make up reality, as she writes in one of her poems, considering the task of the artist. Art is unfortunate. Everything zigzags in this poetry. Nothing grows in a straight, uncomplex line, as in so much minor poetry which expresses emotions more directly than she cares to express them. Perhaps she would say that life, too, is an indirection and made of many inadvertent accidents. Certain Arabs have not heard, she writes, that Napoleon is dead. New York, according to one of her poems, is the chief center of the wholesale fur trade and peopled by foxes. But also it is the mind's accessibility to experience. Experience is the key to her poems. There is no easy formula with which to banish difficult phenomena. She reminds me sometimes of John Donne, who was distracted from God by a fly buzzing, but always she reminds me of the buzzing and booming and blooming of existence. Great art has a hard way. When Marianne Moore's poems first came out, just because she did not proceed in one straight line, she was occasionally called fickle and idiosyncratic by critics who have now familiarized themselves with her unfamiliarity. She had given them, however, the key to the door when she wrote of the mind's conscientious inconsistency. For instance, what is the mind? And then we go to a, a poem, I'm assuming is by Marianne Moore. The mind is an enchanting thing, is an enchanted thing, like the gaze on a cadeted wing, subdivided by sun till the nettings are legion, like Gesiking Plain Scarlatti, like the... Oh, great. <laughs> I thought I had problems pronouncing crap before. Like the... Apteryx all as a beak, or the kiwi's rain shawl of haired feathers, the mind, feeling its way as though blind, walks along with its eyes on the ground. It has memory's ear that cannot hear without having to hear. Like the gyroscopes fall, truly unequivocal, because trued by regnant certainty. It is a power of strong enchantment. It is like the dove neck animated by sun, and his memory's eye, its conscientious inconsistency. It tears off the veil, tears the temptation, the mist the heart wears from its eyes. If the heart has a face, it takes apart dejection, its fire in the dove neck's iridescence, in the inconsistencies of Scarlatti. Unconfusion submits its confusion to proof. It's not a Herod's oath that cannot change. Okay. In our age, as perhaps in every age since the invention of the printing press, there is a preponderant cult of mediocrity. Perhaps we cannot get rid of it, but I object to its being labeled American. When a book is very, very dull or cheap, this is good old American, the advertising testimonials say. <laughs> Sorry, I changed my voice from right away. Uh, considering that our most characteristic philosophers, poets, and fiction writers have often explored the most exotic channels, I wonder why the dull should be called the good old American way. America has been, if anything, the land of crazy unreason, where all kinds of people have done, as a matter of course, the most impossible things. So why should American literature be falsely described as something less experimental than America is? It seems unreasonable. 
Miriam Moore, our characteristic American poet, does not take the smooth highway which our grandparents used to call the easy road to hell. She is a true pioneer in a wilderness of thought, out of the chaos of our fragmentary impressions interrupting each other, which is the first form of our experience. She traces an order determined in part by feeling and in part by exigency. In order to understand life, we must have, she writes in one of her poems, the raccoon-like curiosity of the psychologist. We must investigate phenomena near and distant, consider every facet before we can come to a conclusion, and the conclusion is never. There is an unshakable law of mental life. There is no one way to account for everything. You must hew a path, and the path is grown over by scepter-like weeds behind you as you travel. Thus the poet is, I repeat, a pioneer in a wilderness of diverse impressions, familiarizing the unfamiliar and unfamiliarizing the familiar, domesticating wildness as Daniel did in the lion's den. To be old American does not imply the dwarfing of human consciousness. It means in these glittering poems the same which returns not except to be different. The same which returns not except to be different. The many and not the one. The cobwebs dropping off our eyes. Miriam Moore in a white shirt waist with a blue ribbon at the throat, a coronet of braids, a cool smile, a quick gesture, is both fantastic and sensible. I should say that hers is the fantasy of an extreme common sense. As for poetry, she dislikes it. She confesses in an amazing poem, there are things important beyond all this fiddle. She sees the importance of things of all phenomena, the bat holding an on upside down, the elephants pushing, a wild horse, a tireless wolf, the immovable critic, the baseball fan, the statistician, business documents, and school books. She would like to be the literalist of the imagination, putting real toads into imaginary gardens. Actually, although cut out by editorial scissors, the real toads in imaginary gardens come from a line by Yeats, which she had supposed everyone would recognize, hence had not acknowledged as his. It had been so often quoted as hers, she had kept her silence as to its not being hers. Superior people, according to Marianne Moore's poems, never make long visits, never ask to be shown Longfellow's grave or the glass flowers at Cambridge. I have spent a long afternoon with Marianne Moore, long but short, as she spoke in phrases like her poems. Of her life, she was born in Missouri, a fact that does not account for her usual skepticism, and came to Pennsylvania in its illusionizing landscape when she was very young. She lived for several years at 343 North Hanover Street, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where there were Mennonites and a Hessian guardhouse and a mermaid weather vane. Her mother's garden was filled with all yellow flowers. There was a brick with a cat's paw marked in it, and quite suddenly in describing this brick in the garden walk at Carlisle, she arose and left the room and came back with a brick in her hand. We looked at an album of family pictures as she talked slightly of the past. She showed me the lake where the crane would come and a swan on dry grass, a swan looking very much like a miserable goose. You hardly ever saw a swan on dry grass. H.D., the poet who was the classmate of Mary Moore at Bryn Mawr, she remembered as having wonderful grasshopper eyes. She was too immature for English. She majored in biology, dissecting cuttlefish, and then for a while taught shorthand. Her poems are science and shorthand. For a while she was a librarian, and after that the editor of The Dial, the literary magazine of the 20s. At present she is translating boldly the fables of La Fontaine. She keeps her notes for poems in a doctor's gilt-edged engagement book in the most microscopic handwriting, sometimes with minute drawings of animals to illustrate the principles involved. 
Drawings, too, of flowers, abstract designs, carriages, bicycles. The older notebooks are as small as prayer books. She has besides envelopes labeled with their contents, lizard, goths, elephants, cosmetics, John Muir, petunias, octopuses, Audubon, roses, the queen, Hetaferis, Hetaferis, had she notes a folding bedroom, portable, which was presented to her by her son, Chiops. Adam's grave had a silver fence around it. There is a municipal bat roost in San Antonio, Texas. She has a box of wild bird feathers of all kinds wrapped in tissues and a pair of bluebird feet. She offered me some eagle down, which she says is getting scarcer. She offered me a bluebird's foot. This was published in Vogue in 1946. Okay, well, we got through that, even with you. So, I don't know what my schedule will be. My uh, The podcast schedule will be um, to accommodate the house guest and not, you know, um, uh, be holed up in my room <laughs> for a half hour um, at a time. So, um, it might be every two or three days a week. I just don't know. Sorry about that. Um, but we'll, we'll keep on keeping on. Oh, are you finally tired? Probably because your tummy is full. I'm surprised you didn't get sick, you creepo. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. I'm glad we got that all caught up. Bye.